the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48 Islanders of Canada. Today's guest, Lieutenant General Peter Devlin, CMM, MSC, CD, former commander of the Canadian Army. The hardest thing for me now, I don't know how you're doing, but when I go to a reception that there's a lot of military people, I used to be able to tell from a distance what rank they were. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Well, after a busy summer of some adventures, I found some time to get back into the show, get some more episodes produced for you, and kick off year three. So in year one, there was 30 episodes, including the year one look back and review. I'm not going to do a look back and review for year two. Year two, there was only 15 episodes, so I didn't quite make the same mark as year one. It would have been nice to do 30 episodes. However, a couple of things happened to keep me busier than I was expecting, and I wasn't able to produce those extra episodes, double the amount, essentially. One of the things you may notice, I've got a new microphone. It's a little bit more sensitive. So looking back at year two, what can we notice? A lot more Army presence. I think all of the episodes had an Army flavor, with the exception of episode 40, which was with Honorary Colonel Bill Graham, who was from the Royal Canadian Navy, Deputy Chief Carrick from the April Fool's episode, which was obviously as a police officer, and then Corporal Kaunuk from the Ranger Patrol Group. So he's a Canadian Ranger, doesn't quite fit into Army or Navy. It's kind of a group on their own. You may want to say they fit under the Army, but they do support all three branches. They do support the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force with operations in the Arctic. So we really can't classify them as Army. So it's nice to see other than Army, but the majority of those 15 episodes were Army. The other thing I noticed is they're all men. Every single episode was a male guest, which is something that I would like to change in year three, have more women, and be better reflective of the Canadian Forces overall. It's not that I haven't invited women, they just haven't accepted my invitation. I guess that's a, well, I won't make a comment on that. One of the people that I interviewed in year two was Honorary Colonel Blake Goldring, who has served exclusively as an Honorary Colonel. And the other Honorary Colonel that I interviewed was Honorary Colonel Bill Graham, who started off as an officer cadet in the Navy and currently serves as an Honorary Colonel in the Army. And in between that, he served as the Minister of National Defense, and he also served as the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. Looking over the 15 episodes from year one, I see a majority of the people are infantry. And we have one artillery soldier who then went on to become an infantry soldier, one exclusive logistician, one started off as MSC op and moved on to the infantry, and then obviously a Canadian ranger, and then an officer cadet in the Navy who went on to become an honorary colonel in the Army. I don't know if honorary colonel is a trade, but for classification purposes and statistical purposes, we'll call honorary colonel as a trade, since it doesn't quite fit into either infantry or anything else. Looking at the different ranks of the guests, I can see that uh, we've had four lieutenant colonels and four colonels, as well as four brigadier generals. Now, if you look at the chief warrant officers on their own, we have three chief warrant officers, three senior appointment chief warrant officers, one command chief petty officer first class, and one Canadian Forces chief warrant officer. So the chief warrant officers are still holding their own well ahead of the curve here. Individually, though, it's the lieutenant colonels, colonels, and brigadier generals that are leading the charge. So out of the 45 episodes, we can see that 42 of the episodes featured somebody from the Canadian Army. Three of the episodes included members from the Royal Canadian Navy, 
And I do include the fact that Honorary Colonel Bill Graham did serve in both the Navy and the Army. Rounding it out with two members in the Royal Canadian Air Force and one Canadian Ranger. Although Lieutenant Colonel Matt Richardson currently works for the Rangers as a CO of Free Ranger Patrol Group, I don't think he classifies as a Ranger. Overall, we've seen 27 officers. 12 warrant officers, and I do include chief warrant officers in that grouping. I can have that debate with you over a beer. Three sergeants and four junior ranks. Those officers that served as a member of the ranks before commissioning, we have 14 of those. Rounding out the different types of service in the Canadian Forces, we have 17 guests that were exclusively members of the regular force. 26 of those were in the primary reserve exclusively. 11 of those went between the primary reserve, the regular force, back to the primary reserve. Two of those started off in the primary reserve and went on to the regular force. And the final statistic that I'll talk about today is three people started off in the regular force and continued their service in the primary reserve. What's in store for year three? Well, year three, I do have a lot of invitations out for people, for guests. I'm trying to get a good blend of guests, trying to reflect different types of service, different periods of service, as is my goal. And along with that, I'm charging towards episode 50. And I do have a specific plan in store for episode 50. I'm going to keep you in the dark for a little while longer about that. But if my plan comes through, you should be impressed with the guest for episode 50. There's also episode 48 coming up. I don't know if anyone has any preference for that specific number, but I do need some help finding a guest for episode 48. Interestingly enough, while I was compiling my stats, I noticed that episode 32 went to my good friend Emmett Kelly, when perhaps I should have put a little bit more thought in that and put him at episode 41 and given perhaps Grant Lawson episode 32. But anyhow, that's just the way it worked out. Maybe now I have a little bit more time to think about it in advance. I can be a little bit more strategic with my numbers. So along with my new microphone and charging towards episode 50, we can consider this episode the conclusion of year two, and we will drive towards a lot of great episodes for you to listen to in year three. My guest for today is Lieutenant General Peter Devlin, and when I met General Devlin, he was the commander of the Canadian Army. Well, I have to be very clear about that. When I met him, he was the commander of the land force and later became the commander of the Canadian Army. It shouldn't be a mystery that the Canadian Army has gone through a bit of a historical restructuring, renaming over the, I'd say, about past five years. General Devlin has served his career as a member of the Royal Canadian Regiment, and he specifically commanded the 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment. He also worked with my good friend Dwayne Hobbs in Bosnia when he was the commander of the Royal Canadian Regiment Battle Group. The interesting part of General Devlin's career, I believe, in my opinion, is that he was appointed as the Deputy Commanding General of Three Corps in Fort Hood, Texas in 2005. And then when the Corps ended up deploying to Iraq, he ended up going with them because that was his job, that was his role. He couldn't turn his back on the unit that he was assigned to simply because they were going somewhere. So he deployed to Iraq, off he went, and, and he served there from 2006 to 2008. So as I said, in June of 2010, Lieutenant General Devlin was appointed as the commander of the land force. And then in August of 2011, it was renamed to the Canadian Army, its historical title. General Devlin retired at the end of his period of service as the commander of the Canadian Army. And in August of 2013, he took over a post as the president of Fanshawe College in London, Ontario. Here's my interview with Lieutenant General Peter Devlin. Lieutenant General Devlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Honored to be with you, Mike. 
Now, sir, you and I first met in 2012 at the Canadian Army Strategic Planning Session at Connaught Ranges, where you announced the restoration of the traditional identity of the Canadian Army. We did, and I thank you very much for highlighting that. It was great to be at Connaught and great to be able to pay tribute to the history of the Canadian Army. And then, sir, after that, you and I had an opportunity to work together in April of 2013, where I was the parade sergeant major and you were the reviewing officer for the Battle of York Parade. This was also a big day for the 3rd Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment. It was a great day, and so a wonderful ceremony. The Battle of York Parade was a great parade, and I was struck by the power and the strength and the recognition as the group of soldiers, sailors, airmen, and women marched through the streets of Toronto. And it was nice to see folks stop and pay tribute. That was really special. And it was also, as you mentioned, Mike, a special day for the Royal Canadian Regiment, 3rd Battalion in particular, that received new colours from His Royal Highness as part of a royal visit. A really remarkable time frame for the regiment. I had an interesting position to view the rehearsals for the presentation of colours. I chose to take my family for supper in the CN Tower the day before because we were staying downtown in Toronto for the next morning for the Battle of York Parade. And we got to see the rehearsal for the parachute jump. And that was pretty spectacular to watch members of the Royal Canadian Regiment jumping into the city of Toronto from above. And 3rd Battalion, very proud of the fact that they own the parachute company inside a great regiment. And that distinguishes them as part of being a light infantry battalion, uh, having that parachute capability. And yeah, soldiers there are incredibly proud of that. Now, sir, I sent you the questions in advance. Are you all set? I am, Mike. Thank you. Would you like to tell the listeners why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces? Mike, I joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1978, right out of high school, a young fella eager for excitement and challenge. And back in 1978, if you were a music guy, the Bee Gees' Saturday Night Fever was number one. (laughs) If you're a Fleetwood Mac fan, they were also big, and I was off to university in 1978 and attended a Supertramp concert at Western University. My first album. (laughs) There you go. Montreal beat Boston for the Stanley Cup, and the world back then was also a kind of a, a troubled world where you had issues like the Air India bombing that killed 213 people the bombing in Beirut that killed 175. And I don't know if you remember that there was an Iran movie theater bombing that killed 422. Wow. There was all kinds of conversations about Middle East peace. And way back then, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact was where the threat was from a military point of view. Soviet Union conducting nuclear testing. That year they fired on a civilian Korean airline. And they were mucking around with Georgia and attempts to change the constitutional language there. So that was a bit of the theme and a bit of the world when I was joining back in 1978. Which way did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? Did you go to RMC or some other manner? So I joined the regular officer training program and went to a civilian university. So the Royal Military College system doesn't provide enough commissioned officers. And so we take advantage of the civilian universities and colleges across the country. And I headed off to Western University in London, Ontario for my studies. Right. And every summer went off to military training. London, Ontario, the hometown of the Royal Canadian Regiment. It is the hometown. Now, I really was not 
as familiar as I am now with the history of the Royal Canadian Regiment, I knew that there was a battalion, actually two battalions in London back in 1978, and it still is the very proud home station of the RCR. What were you like when you joined, sir? Mike, I would have been a young, shy, somewhat reserved kid who, as I mentioned, was eager for challenge, looking for excitement, but a fairly quiet young man. Now, sir, when you joined the Canadian Forces, were you a car guy or a sports guy? What kind of person did you define yourself as? So when I joined back in 1978 out of high school, I was probably a sports guy, not a great sports guy, <laughs> but a guy that could carry his own, shy, reserved. And one of the opportunities the military provided was for a young man to break out of that shy, reserved shell. Absolutely. You can't last very long like that. No, that's for sure. Sir, what was your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Thanks, Mike. That's a great question. And how I'd respond would be, I'm usually proud of the deployments that I've been involved in over my career. And so if you would allow me, I'd just offer a couple of comments on some of those. Certainly. So when I joined in 1978, we were in the midst of the Cold War. A war that was won in 1989 as the wall fell. And I think it's important to highlight the fact that there are thousands of Canadian soldiers, sailors, and airmen and women and their families that made a contribution to Canada's role in helping shape and win the Cold War. I don't know whether that gang received the recognition that they deserved for the role that they had in winning the Cold War. That's now over 25 years past. That's right. And so as the wall came down, it had other parts of the world were touched by that. And so back in the 80s, I had the opportunity to head off to Cyprus in a traditional peacekeeping type mission. But as the 1990s unfolded, other countries had challenges, and certainly one of the largest was the Balkans. That is when the UN, in my view, had a series of failures because status quo, which in other missions was the basis of success, Cyprus being a great example, was the green line, stayed as it was back during that particular conflict. But status quo was no longer acceptable mm -hmm. in the 1990s. That's right. And so the UN had significant challenges. So on that deployment theme, I was lucky enough to head off to the Balkans on three different tours, and they were bookended as a company commander heading off to the Balkans in a blue helmet in a white vehicle and ending commanding a battalion with a green helmet inside a green vehicle as part of a NATO mission. So my three tours there, one in a blue helmet, one as part of a NATO implementation force, and the other one is part of a NATO stabilization force. I'm proud of how Canada was involved and I think had a leadership role in the evolution of that mission in the Balkans. And the Balkans, while it's not perfect now, right. if you think from 1991-92 as things started to unfold and we moved out of Bosnia, I believe around 2012, so 20 years later, right. we remained in Kosovo, but 20 years is not very long. And in 20 years, I think the international community made a remarkable difference in the Balkans. And Canada had a gigantic role there. And so I'm proud of that. 
And then as I continued to be involved in Canadian soldiers going spots, as we changed from the 1990s into 2000s, tensions continued to rise. Of course, there was 9-11. I was a student in Toronto at the Canadian Forces College at that particular time, but remember classes stopping while we tracked what was happening through the media on September the 11th. Right. But a couple of years after that, I found myself leading the Kabul Multinational Brigade as part of Canada's commitment to NATO efforts there. And so Canada became a leader in Afghanistan, beginning in, well, we had special forces there too, but our non-special forces elements arriving in 2003, and we were out in 2014, but a commitment in Kabul initially, and then some marvelous work that was done in a really tough part of Afghanistan down in the Kandahar region, and then we came back up to Kabul to become involved in training the Army and the police forces there, and as I mentioned, out in 2014. And while that was happening in Afghanistan, and I should also mention, Mike, that over that period of time, so went in as a brigade commander, but ended commanding the Army, and so watched that whole Afghan mission with a great deal of interest and pride with how Canadian soldiers managed fought and I think represented Canadian values with such tremendous pride, skill, and having made a difference in that country. Right, sir. And I guess the last thing I would say to answer that question was I was fortunate enough to be on exchange with the U.S. as the deputy commander of the multinational forces in Iraq over a long period of time from 2006 to 2008. And so also in the Middle East, also watching how coalition and NATO forces were making a difference in that part of the world. I continued to learn a lot. I continued to grow professionally and also struck by the respect that Canada and our military enjoyed internationally through missions like the mission in Iraq and as the Army commander visiting other missions, whether they were UN missions in the Middle East or in Africa. Canada as a country enjoying great respect and our soldiers celebrated for their skill, their professionalism, and the values that they carry in their hearts. Sir, I think it's interesting that you say that you're on a national security course while the events that rewrite the books are playing out live on the day. Very interesting. Sir, can you explain how a Canadian officer becomes the deputy commander of a U.S. Corps in Iraq? So I was on exchange with the U.S., not the first Canadian officer to be there. In fact, I was the third, following great leaders like Rick Hillier and Walt Natinchuk to Fort Hood, the home of uh, three U.S. Corps. And it was the Corps HQ that was tagged to be the basis on which the multinational corps headquarters in Iraq was based. And so I was the deputy, one of two deputy commanders. But again, Mike, I think it's just that Canadians bring a very broad view to conflict. And so my experiences with the UN, my experiences with non-governmental organizations all brought into operations in Iraq. Um, And I don't know whether they would have been brought in the same way had there not been a Canadian officer who had been involved, had seen, had touched other operations, namely 
UN and other coalition had worked a lot with non-governmental organizations to be able to make a difference, to be able to harness the interest of all kinds of different nations in a particular conflict. So very rewarding right? and usually powerful. So that when that Canadian flag walked into a room, <laughs> it was, wow, where did you come from? <laughs> and you come from a great country. A free country, we define liberty in a very unique Canadian way. And just, it was amazing the respect that was enjoyed because you were wearing the Canadian flag. Absolutely. So who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered during your time in the Army? Thank you very much. Another super question that I'm troubled to be able to answer it with here is the particular person. So I'll have to touch on a couple of folks if you would allow me, Mike. Absolutely, sir. So I had the very good fortune of working for a fellow by the name of Rick Hatton, who was the commanding officer of 3rd Battalion, the Royal Canadian Regiment in Germany. Rick Hatton taught me how to lead and motivate troops, a very powerful commanding officer, a usually respected commanding officer. He was the commanding officer that sent my rifle company and me into the Balkans for the first time. I also had the good fortune of working for General Rick Hillier, who taught me about motivating troops, (laughs) but also taught me how to motivate a nation. And I admire how he mobilized Canada and how the respect that Canadian soldiers enjoyed. I think Rick Hillier had a tremendously large role in that. And the other group that I'd like to touch on are senior NCOs. The Canadian Army has an approach to senior NCOs that no other military in the world has. And that concept of a command team, so that commanding officer and his or her sergeant major is a precious, special, unique team. And as a young platoon commander in 1st Battalion in London, Ontario, back in the early 80s, a fellow by the name of Warren Officer Gary St. George was my platoon warrant officer. And Gary taught me about the strength of a Canadian soldier. He taught me about how important training was, about how important fitness was, and respect. And there's no doubt in my mind that the commanding officer of 1RCR at the time put Gary St. George in my organization to teach me. While he did a great job caring for the soldiers too, Mike, Right. <laughs> he was there to teach a young green platoon commander about soldiering, about leading in a Canadian way. And he was awesome. Many years later, I had the great fortune of working with Chief Warrant Officer Wayne Ford, who was the Brigade Sergeant Major of 2 Canadian Mechanized Brigade Group. He was my command team partner as we went into Afghanistan in 2003. A thoughtful man, a principled man, and an incredibly people-oriented man. Again, was a multinational force and Wayne Ford was magnificent at working with different nations. He was magnificent working with the Afghan leaders, military, civilian, police, and Canadian senior NCOs. The concept of a command team, no one does it like Canada does, and I think that's another special feather in the Canadian pride hat. Absolutely. And your last two command team partners, both Gino Moretti and Mike Hornbrook, are exceptional chief warrant officers. Gino and Mike, two dear friends that I still keep in touch with. And here's the other neat thing, Mike, that has happened over my career. Canadian soldiers, by virtue of the missions that we have gone on, when we link up, we embrace each other. We (laughs) hug each other. 
And when I see Gino and Mike, we give super long, respectful hugs because of where we have been side by side and the friendship that we enjoy. So two magnificent men. Well, my own command team partner just stepped down yesterday, Colonel Dwayne Hobbs, and I've moved on to becoming a captain since, but a very unique bond between the commander and the sergeant major. Absolutely. So Dwayne and I deployed together in 1996 oh, right. into the Balkans. And yeah, great young man, uh, highly respected by his troops, a skilled soldier and a great leader. Absolutely. I just recorded his episode right before yours. Okay. Sir, we've come to the final question. What is the greatest challenge you've had to overcome in your service? So I think the greatest challenge that I've had to overcome in my service has probably been the United Nations rules of engagement as the UN had its challenges in the 1990s. And so the UN forced Canadian soldiers to put ourselves in danger so that we had the ability and the right to use deadly force. Right. And so we then had the capacity to use self-defense as our mechanism to be able to take offensive action. And those ROE at the time limited initiative. It limited how proactive we could be. It limited our ability to deal with threats and we weren't allowed to be guided by Canadian values. Right. And so that was challenging. It was difficult. And we often walked a fine line to be able to achieve our mission and to do what we thought was right. The most remarkable thing that might have come out of that was now when we do deploy, we have very clear rules of engagement and we spend a lot of time practicing and understanding those rules and making sure that they're updated and reviewed regularly. And no soldier goes even to a flood zone without understanding their rules of engagement. Absolutely. I think that it's now part of the military culture is how important ROE have developed. And I think all that training, Mike, is centered on how we trust soldiers to do their job. And I'd offer one of the most interesting questions for leaders is the concept of trust. And as leaders, when we look at subordinates, is trust given or must trust be earned? And I think it's an absolutely just super interesting question. I view that leaders give trust and Canadian soldiers being as skillful as trained, as professional as they are, and the fact that they are carrying our flag on their shoulder deserve to be trusted. And it's only when there's issues that we then need to step in and make adjustments. And I think that the whole concept of rules of engagement is centered on the trust that we give military leaders and their soldiers. Absolutely. Sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. Is there anything that you're up to now that you'd like to talk about? Mike, I am fortunate to have moved from the military after 35 wonderful years, I mean, remarkable years, that brought me from platoon commander to commanding our great army, now to be the president of Fanshawe College. And so I tell folks that I've traded in soldiers for students. <laughs> there are more similarities than there are differences. I can agree with that. And it's a great place to be. Although I did try to have them march down the halls and have inspections in the <laughs> residences, but that didn't go over too well. Being at Fanshawe is professionally rewarding, personally rewarding. I still keep up my military contacts and friendships because they were my whole life. In fact, they were my whole family's life. And so those friendships remain alive and vibrant. 
And that would be the one thing that I would miss. It would be the people. Certainly. My time had come and gone, and I left usually proud of what I had been able to accomplish. And Fanshawe was looking for a president. I would say they were looking for a leader, and my skill set fit nicely with what they were looking for, and I'm enjoying it immensely. And the principles, Mike, are very similar to the ones that I've grown up with in the military. Sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. Thank you. So, Mike, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have shared my experiences over 35 years. I'm usually proud of being a Canadian soldier, a member of the Royal Canadian Regiment. I'm proud to have worn our flag for 35 years. And I think particularly proud to have been able to represent Canada abroad and in many different missions around the world. Canada makes a difference. I think when Canada accepts a bit of risk as a nation, we benefit. Canadians benefit. Our military is second to none because of the strength of the people that are in our military and the fact that we proudly carry Canadian values. Well, sir, I'd like to thank you for, first of all, appointing me to be the Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group, but also for agreeing to be a guest on the show. And before we started recording, you asked me to call you Peter, and I just reflected that I haven't done that yet. So, Peter, thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Mike, you're very, very welcome. Thank you for all that you have done for Canada, for our Army, and for 32 Brigade. I hope and probably am quite certain that there are a ton of great memories that fill your heart as well. Absolutely, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike LaCroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike LaCroix Production.